Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture with me, Robert Bound. This week we're talking about nightlife, whether that's in a club or in a festival field. Over the past 18 months, dance floors across most of the world haven't seen much more than tumbleweed, and it's taken its toll on the nighttime economy. But that is slowly starting to change. While we continue to live through this pandemic, we're seeing entertainment venues work out ways to reopen safely, whether that's down to social distancing, vaccinations or wearing masks. And they need to open in order to keep this industry thriving. Of course, a lot of these options don't add up to the proper nightlife experience. So how are businesses that rely on a packed dance floor getting things going again? If we look at clubs across the world, many are adopting the vaccine passport method or requiring a negative test result. In Berlin, some clubs are even offering vaccine nations alongside DJ sets. Regulations by local governments can be confusing and are changing regularly, making things uncertain for club owners. These regulations also vary from country to country and rely heavily on whether young people have been vaccinated or not. Later on in the programme, we're going to meet a man in Hong Kong who's dared to open a brand new nightclub this year. Is he mad? Or is this exactly what people want after a year of watching Netflix and socialising in tiny groups? This year has also seen festivals start to find their feet again after a summer of cancellations in 2020 and then another uncertain summer this year. We're going to start things off with Simon Taff, director of End of the Road, one of the UK's most popular independent music festivals that's taken place every September since 2006, or at least it had until last year. The 2021 edition is going ahead as planned, with acts like Hot Chip, Damon Alban and Little Sims taking to the stage. During the festival's hiatus, Taff has launched a record label to support the artists he manages and a coffee roastery that employs out-of-work musicians, no less. Monocle on Culture producer and long-time end-of-the-road attendee Holly Fisher chats to Simon Taff about the toll the pandemic has taken on the festival industry and the creative choices he's had to make to ensure the show goes on. Well, first of all, Simon, I mean, last year was a pretty bleak year for live music, really, wasn't it? Um, What was it like when you reached that first weekend in September where every year for over a decade you've been putting on a festival and there wasn't anything happening? Uh, I guess it felt deflating, a bit weird. I mean, we did do a streaming event, which was kind of like bittersweet. And we were on site for the streaming event. So it was kind of weird to have five bands play and 30, 40 audience members watching these bands in the middle of the afternoon getting filmed where there's usually, you know, 15, 16,000 people. Yeah, I bet. That must have been a strange sort of ghost town. I mean, just sort of generally, what support has been offered to festival directors over the past 18 months in order for events to get back going again? Well, obviously we got the Arts Council funding so that's been very helpful. I mean, it didn't make up for the losses, but it definitely gave us enough energy and confidence to go ahead with this year. And um, Obviously, this year was very difficult, not knowing the whole time. But, you know, if we hadn't had the Arts Council funding, we might have not been able to press on and might have had to pull the plug earlier, like a lot of festivals did that were planned to go ahead in August that now 
could go ahead but can't go ahead because they didn't have funding or didn't have support but yeah that's been good support but then obviously it's just been a mystery for everyone to like the, the uncertainty and not knowing anything has been very hard because of spending money not knowing what's going to happen that happened in this year and last year well, we've seen that there's still obviously a huge thirst for festivals i don't think people are really deterred by the pandemic i mean the rate that ends the road sold out when you release the tickets earlier this year was so quick but has enough damage been done by festivals not being able to happen last year to affect the future of them Absolutely, in terms of, and I'm hoping that it will come back a bit, but, you know, production costs have gone up from last year to this year, more than sort of £150,000, £200,000. You know, some of that will be a one-off thing that, you know, like most of the toilet contractors left the market and went to building sites and found out that that was more lucrative. And then most, a lot of contractors have folded or their staff had, run off to do other things so they've still not set themselves up properly again to to deliver this year so it's very competitive in that way a lot of staging contractors went to film sets in the film industry so yeah it's been it's been tough trying to scramble and get that organized and I mean I think next year a lot of people will enter back into the market but this year has been a bit scarce so that's really affected us and I know it's affected lots of other festivals last minute people pulling out and things like that. We've had a power contractor pulled out on us, you know, two or three times so far because there's quite little of them. And then a lot of these power contractors are like powering all these COVID testing sites all over that you see outside. And I mean, we'll make it all happen and it's all good, but it's constantly like a battle. It's this year particularly is very scarce. So does it feel like there's even more competition between festivals in some ways then? Or has this experience brought festival runners together to kind of work out how to get through it there's a bit of both it's definitely brought us a lot more together and we're sharing a lot of information and that's been really heartening but then and it's not deliberate competition but there has been competition because you can imagine all the festivals for the first part of the festival season got chopped but then a lot of them tried to all move into the same period so it it is a you know hopefully a one-off one year thing but you know there's lots of festivals in July that move now to August September so there's that part of natural competition that's happened which is definitely you know driving prices up. Talking about um, like artists playing and stuff I mean we saw every single festival lineup has had to go through changes depending on who can get into the country and who can perform and I think it was Latitude a few weeks ago, you know, all the way up to the last minute, they're having acts drop out because they might have caught COVID or they've got to self-isolate. Are you having to think of a lineup and a backup lineup and a backup backup lineup to, to sort of cover all eventualities? I just kind of do it as I go, but I've got a list of a lot of, you know, we made a huge list of British acts that would work, but, you know, we've had to rebook it four times, probably had to rebook the headliners two three times I mean it was funny like a friend in, in the music industry said to me oh you probably should just stick with completely British acts and I thought oh we might be okay I think I was back in like April March you know now I should listen to it because they're not none of them have sort of pulled out so it's gone from like probably 60% American artists to then an international artist then it's gone down to 70% UK artists and now it's like probably 90% UK 
UK and European artists, well, 95%, percent I'd say. But yeah, it's been it's been a bit of a hassle just like obviously doing that. But I'm also very proud of the lineup that we've managed to pull together. And I think it's kind of interesting as well this year to be forced to work within these parameters. I kind of like the challenge. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say, does it feel like a... I, I don't know, I mean, I've been going to End of the Road for years and it do, has always felt like it's had a really strong connection with American music. Absolutely. Does it say, does this year's... Does this year feel like a different festival just because you're because you're working within those parameters? I guess in some ways, but yeah, it's kind of forced me to be more creative and really discover more music in this country and in Europe. And also like doing things like asking Johnny Greenwood to do like all the soundtrack and he's doing some experimental stuff and headliner garden stage. So I might not follow that in a normal year as an actual headliner. So I've quite liked the challenge, to be honest. But, I mean, obviously, it's been annoying not having... There's a lot of great American artists that are... Well, all over the world, there's a lot of African artists that have pulled out, Indian artists, artists from New Zealand. They've all had to cancel. So it's a shame. I mean, there are, there are like, three or four American artists, so it'll be, uh, be quite exquisite, <laughs> I guess, when they play. <laughs> yeah. And, I, I mean, you work closely with artists because i know that you 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 manage some as well don't you yeah i manage ezra Furman and a few other artists as well yeah what has your experience been like working with them over the past 18 months what what have they been feeling i mean it's really hard to not play live but they've gone off and recorded great music and it's pushed them to do that but i mean there's a, a new band i'm working with called modern women who are just like really building up a following and things were really starting to happen. And then COVID happened. So it's kind of like they were put in a cupboard for two years almost. Ezra was kind of lucky enough that he was at the end of an album campaign and he needed to write some soundtrack stuff for another TV show. But at the same time, I think all of them would have loved to play live. You know, that's what keeps them alive and keeps that energy of the group together a bit. Also, a lot of the musicians got affected because they, especially Ezra's band, they rely on the live circuit for, to live really so, but, but the demand's even higher now so it's quite exciting I went to the first full capacity gig I mean it was only for 200 but it was like there was a real buzz there and I think that it was like their best live show that they'd ever played even though they hadn't played for two years but just the feeling of coming back to that yeah I'm still yet to go to my first live gig and I am really excited for what that's going to feel like it's weird it could be music that you, you might not quite like the music and then <laughs> it's like I've seen a band that I'm like not the biggest fan of but you just love everything it's like being starving and then eating a meal and it's going to taste great <laughs> <laughs> you actually you recently set up your end of the road record label as well and I wondered if that was always kind of on the cards or if that was something that was a result of the pandemic no, I mean, it's not exactly like the most lucrative thing. So it was mainly to springboard the artists that I manage and and also like have a bit of fun. We're not doing it really for money, we're doing it like to break even and we're going to do some reissue stuff. But it, well, yeah, I guess it came a bit from the pandemic of like people who knew, had expertise in that area now didn't have work to do really on the festival. But the main thing we did during the pandemic was we started like a, coffee truck and coffee we're starting a coffee roaster and and that's been quite fun building that brand and it's gone really well so that's one of the things we did during the pandemic were you employing out-of-work musicians yeah we it was like a nice sweet thing but 
and that for, first all, I hope it doesn't sound too sort of gimmicky. Like, but it's actually really worked out because it's created this great community and there's like, you know, 10 or 15 of them on this road and this coffee truck. And now even that music's back, I'm going to keep the same policy because it's just got so much flexibility. So they can, you know, be baristas and then go off and record and then come back and go off on tour. And it's created a really cool community and we're going to build another coffee truck soon. And it's been quite exciting with, it's also kept me tapped into a lot of new, young, exciting musicians. That's cool. I like that. And I wondered, what's the moment that you're most looking forward to about the festival this year? Like, when's the moment that you kind of feel like we've done it and you can maybe not relax, but enjoy it? Like, is it when the gates open? Is it when the forest dance floor is full or when the big he- the first headliner goes on? Yeah, I mean, it's usually a feeling, I guess, when the gates are open, usually. But I think it's not really going to feel real to me until, like, the garden stage is playing live music. I don't think it's really going to feel that it's actually happened or... I mean, I don't, you know, nothing's going to change. We're going ahead. But you, you still got that slight feeling of like the way that things have chopped and changed so much. I've been speaking to friends who've just opened the gates and it's like, it's kind of a weird feeling. But I feel I feel like I'll have that feeling and probably break into tears or something when the garden station opens. <laughs> All right, well, I'll listen out for the sobbing when I'm, when I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> That was Simon Taff, founder of End of the Road Festival, which takes place from the 2nd of September at Llama Tree Gardens in the UK. Find out more info at endoftheroadfestival.com. Back to the club now. Ray Ng has been a familiar face in Hong Kong's central party district of Lan Kwai Fong ever since he started going out as a teenager in the 80s. The nightclub in Presario has been behind a string of successful night spots, most notably Volar, which opened in the immediate aftermath of the SARS epidemic in 2004. While Volar had to shut its doors in May, Ng recently opened his newest venue called Fei on the top floors of the California Tower in Lan Kwai Fong. Our Hong Kong bureau chief, James Chambers, took the lift to the 25th floor to get Ng's views on opening a nightclub during a pandemic and some perspective on the health of Hong Kong's nightlife industry after that mandatory five-month hiatus. You've opened Fei. Are you aware of many other people opening new bars and, and nightclubs. We've seen the, I mean, we've seen the restaurant industry go crazy in Hong Kong. There are new restaurants opening every single day. What, what about your industry? Are, are there many nightclubs and bars opening up now? There's a few that was open. There's one called Boomerang, which, was, which took over the old uh, Hard Rock Cafe, just up the street. And then now another one just opened last week, soft opened, called Space. Um, so it's also a friend of mine. So he, he took over the old bungalow space below Dragon Eye. So um, I, I went there for the soft opening. It's a, it's a great space, um, uh, a very good crowd, and um, I, I'm, I'm sure it's going to do very well. Uh, being in Hong Kong, we're quite lucky also. You know, the government slowly you know, lifting the curfews from 10 p.m. to midnight to 2, and now it's 4 a.m., and uh, along with the restaurant industry, it's been pretty vibrant, you know, quite happening. It's, it's Wednesday lunchtime now, so 
obviously the um, the club is is closed. Um, but one Wednesday nights used to be pretty big uh, in Hong Kong for going out. Is that the same now, or has the, the kind of going out schedule changed somewhat because of the pandemic? I think no, it's not as crazy as it used to be the Wednesday. I, I still remember the old Wednesdays, maybe back five, six, eight years ago, was like a weekend night, right? Uh, like in Dragon Eye and Vola, but uh, now it's more scattered. And I think people are still getting used to the idea of going out. So, uh, they, so weekends is, is still the prime time. Week, weekdays is, is more hit or miss, I would say. You know, the rooftop is popular, more popular than the club. You mentioned that uh, your venues had to be shut down for, for months because of the pandemic. Now that you're open again, what kind of rules are you operating under now? We're operating under a zone D, well, in, in under the Hong Kong regulation. So, which means we can open till 4 a.m., but all the patrons and staff have to be vaccinated. And we have to check the, the vaccinate record upon the entry. You're known for bringing in a lot of um, famous international DJs uh, and musicians to play at your venues. But of course, Hong Kong, the Hong Kong borders are now effectively shut to, to anyone who doesn't live here. How has that been for you as a nightclub owner? And, and has that provided a lot of opportunities for actually local talent? Um, yeah, we've been exploring, like trying uh, new DJs actually. So um, and uh, yeah, we've 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 uh, found a few young, you know, um, promising ones actually. So um, yeah, I think it's like a could be a blessing in disguise. As well as someone who likes to to go out, you're also a businessman and a, and a successful nightclub owner. Given that the pandemic has allowed you to take the top two floors in the, the centerpiece of, of Lang Kwai Fong, Hong Kong's nightclub district. Has that given you a huge opportunity or do you still see this place as one hell of a risk? I, I think it's a great opportunity. You know, I party in Lang Kwai Fong since the mid 80s and as a teenager and I've, I party in this building, the old California Tower before it, it did redevelop. So I've seen Lang Kwai Fong grow, you know. The crowd in Lang Kwai Fong over the years um, has changed the dynamics a little bit um, to a different crowd. And I think because of the pandemic, it's, it's, it's changed again in a better way. So I, I even talked to the uh, Alan Zeman, the, the guys the, um, that, and, the, and the landlord, and um, they also feel the same, you know. We, we have great hopes for Lang Kwai Fong to rise again. As someone who's been partying here in Lang Kwai Fong since the 80s, uh, you've kind of you know, grown up uh, here. What was it like to see this such a, a vibrant and busy district turn into uh, a ghost town during the pandemic? There were, you know, there were times over the, the last 18 months where there was simply nobody you know, on the streets. How, how bad was it? It, it was it was scary and it was a very sad feeling. I mean, I I walked down Lang Kwai Fong during the pandemic. It's it's complete ghost town. I mean, it it did happen before. I think ninety two or ninety three. Then uh, New Year's Eve there was a stampede right after the countdown. I was w- walking into Lang Kwai Fong with my friends, 
and they, they we didn't we didn't have a smartphone, so no, nobody knew what was happening. Just police said, "Okay, there's an accident," so we didn't come in. So we, when we got home later on, we just saw from the news that some um, because the stampede it was slippery, and like 15, 20 people died. I'm talking ninety two, ninety three, and after that, Nang Kui Fong also became a ghost town, but not not as dead as the pandemic. But nobody was coming for a good maybe ten years. It was slow. I mean, it wasn't dead until we opened Vola, and then we drove the crowd back to Lang Kui Fong. And then with the pandemic, it was dead again. And now everyone's coming back again. So you know, it's not the first time. But I, I mean, I, I'm very positive person. So I, I, I kind of have a never say die attitude. <laughs> what kind of support is the government providing to? To nightclub venues and nightlife venues like yours, um, there was they had a subsidy program, not to pay because we were new, only existing licenses. So even Vola, we got some subsidies and the other and the other bars, but to be honest, it wasn't even enough to cover the the rent, even with a discount from the landlord. So it it, it helped, but you know, not not tremendously, to be honest. And what are the the main issues facing? you as a nightclub owner and uh, the nightlife industry as a whole. Clubs, bars, they're open again now. What uh, issues are you having to tackle? There's always competition, but I think competition is, is healthy. You know, it, 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 it drives, it drives uh, people to make things better. So I think it's a positive issue. Well, I mean, an, an, another issue could, could be the Delta variant or another variant that that is still a slight uncertainty, but um, overall, I'm, I'm positive. And finally, do you think nightclubs have a future? Oh, totally. It's energy. You know, it, you know, people people have to go out, have to release, have to socialize. You know, it's it's interesting because um, a lot of the industries are replaced by IT, by you know, you know. Um, but I think nightlife is one industry. It's hard to replace you know it's it's, it's social, social energy you know like music it's also important you know like it it's it just um, important part of uh, everyone's life that was Ray Ng, owner of Fei Nightclub in Hong Kong, with Monocle's James Chambers. Now, before we go, we're going to hear from our senior culture correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. For a recent episode of our podcast, Tool Stories, he waxed lyrical about nightclubs and some of his favourite memories on the dance floor. It's hard to say if it's because I'm deprived of a good dance floor at the moment. But since the beginning of the pandemic, I've been daydreaming about one of the first clubs I ever went to, Aloca, in my hometown of Sao Paulo. From the design point of view, it would be difficult to celebrate it as a masterpiece. But from a pure fun point of view, I thought it was delightful. It was one of those clubs in Sao Paulo with a wonderful, eclectic crowd, where the young gay kids would mix with everyone, from goths to sex workers, they were all in there. My favorite night was on Sundays. The playlist ranged from Deepish Mode to Spice Girls to Brazilian Kids TV presenter Xuxa. The Cavernous Club had the look of a regional haunted house, but with happier music. The floor was black concrete and there was a space that looked similar to a boxing ring. 
but rather than punches being thrown, that was the place where drag queens would come to perform their late-night sketches. A loca was made like a labyrinth, but its enormous interiors meant there was always a cozy corner to be found. It was in one of those corners that I discovered Que Fim Levou Robin by the late Mauro Borges, a Brazilian band I used to love, as well as many other excellent artists. The whole aesthetic of the club was inspired by Alice in the Wonderland, a naughtier version of it, I must add, with no regard for minimalism. From my memory, there were no air conditioners, but only hefty ventilators to help out during those hot summer nights. The club was so important to Paulistas that in the year 2000, former mayor Marta Suplicy included the club on her campaign trail. She was duly elected, of course. But in my dancing daydreams, other clubs have been featuring too. The small and intimate Trash Palace in London, Soho, one of the first places I went dancing after moving to London. It too was a narrow, sweaty labyrinth, but the music and the crowd was so incredible. Or for those that need a bit more space to dance, gigantic clubs like the Astoria spring to mind. I mean, even Madonna performed there. More recently, I was taken by a different clubbing experience in Lisbon. I went dancing at a 60s-inspired Austin Powers-esque venue, which looked incredible. And while the average person in the crowd was a good 30 years older than me, they all definitely knew how to dance. The lacquered-haired ladies still have me trying to imitate some of their best moves. I could reminisce endlessly about the fun I've had over the years in clubs all over the world, but all this is to say that I believe clubs play an essential part in a city's branding. I mean, who would want to visit a city without a good dance floor? A city's night economy should never be ignored. It's the reason so many cities are employing the services of a nightmare, to make sure that what happens after dark continues to make the city a better place to be. But even with the global pandemic pulling the plug on DJs and the growing popularity of dating apps signaling the death of dancing for some, I have a feeling that clubs will be eternal. You just can't beat the power of the dance floor. Thanks to Fernando Augusto Pacheco there for reminding us why we've missed dance floors just so much. And thanks also, of course, to my producer, Holly Fisher. We'll be back next week when we'll be chatting to Sarah Cracknell from Saint Etienne about their new LP. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thank you very much for tuning in. <laughs>